If you're here every week, you know my pattern of preaching is to preach book at a time, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Proverbs has kind of upset that a little bit where we kind of jump around within the chapter, but it's chapter by chapter, verse by verse, by and large. And there are many benefits to this system. It keeps me away from hobby horses, meaning I don't preach the same thing for years straight. It makes sure that you hear the fullness of the Word of God. It gives me a chance to preach books at a time. It makes for actually much uh, simpler and more in-depth preparation. There's a whole multitude of reasons that you should preach this way. There is one, however, critique that is often thrown up against it. And is the issue of timeliness. Well, if you go ahead and commit to book at a time or chapter by a time, uh, you, you don't get the opportunity to plan your sermon for the week that your body is having. And I go ahead and tell you, kind of uh, pull back the curtain, so to speak, let you in on the life of, a, of the preacher here. I've never actually found that to be true except for two times. One was when it was Mother's Day and we had one of the passages in the Old Testament on rape. That was a, a bit awkward. I probably wouldn't have planned that one. The other was the Sunday in which I had planned to preach on the happy songs of Zion and we had a significant death in the congregation and actually had to change the sermon on that one. It's the only time I've ever done that in 10 years here. But letting you in again a little bit behind the curtain in the life of the preacher... I actually find a bit more often than not that it's a little bit too timely. That it's passages that I'm not quite ready to preach yet. This is one of those. You may know this week in our home has been total chaos. We came back from the beach. We had massive leak in the house. It's the second within 15 months. Ceiling falling out Llewellyn's room, starting to work on plumbing, and it's been one of those problems as the plumbers have worked that they found more and more and more problems. And you know, the more problems they find, the higher the cost. The more complicated the solution, and the more challenging it's going to become. Tomorrow morning, they cut the foundation in Boston's bedroom to dig a hole under the front of our house and destroy our yard and our foundation and the slab and the whole kit and caboodle. And what a timely passage. I wouldn't have picked it. I mean, out of all the passages in Scripture, I would never have gone, you know, I should preach Proverbs 19 this week. But it's perfect. And it's perfect because this entire chapter centers on one verse. I broke from my normal habit and actually made commentary as I read. I don't remember the last time I did that. Verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. It's the key to the whole chapter in many ways. You could even say it's the key to the whole book in a form. As it has one prerequisite and then three consequences that follow. The fear of the Lord. And when you hear fear of the Lord, it's important that you don't think of the wrong thing. 
It's not that feeling you would have if I somehow managed to drop a snake in your lap and you go, ah, and panic and you'd have fear, but it's not the right type. I would say probably here the better illustration for what fear of the Lord looks like is those precious moments we see today in American athletics where the super fan kid somehow gets put in the right situation where the athlete that he loves so much is standing next to him. If you follow English soccer, they have a great habit where they have what they're called mascots, where at the beginning of the game, right before the game starts, all the players walk out and they have a little kid hand in hand. They're called the mascots of the team. I love watching the faces of the kids. Because most of those kids, it's their idol that they have respected and loved. And here all of a sudden... The object of their desire is right in front of them, and they're just starstruck. I love their faces. Half the time, they're, they're like twitchy because they don't know what to do. It's probably a much better illustration of what fear of the Lord means. It's this sense of being struck with awe of the greatness and the grandness and the difference from us. If you're older in the room, you remember the days in this country where younger people tended to have that for older people just in general. If your hair is a bit more gray or a bit more absent than mine, you were probably raised with that relationship with your grandparents. That if they were talking, you didn't talk, you listened. Everybody was sir or ma'am, and if they were older, you better pay attention to what they were saying. A deep-seated, holy respect for God. And this fear of the Lord and the way that the language of Proverbs is written is a description for the natural condition of the Christian. What it's saying here, the fear of the Lord leads to life. If you are a believer, if, if your knowledge of God is grounded in your new heart, in your new life, in the transformation that God gives, there are consequences that follow. Life. Oh, what an awesome one. If you are transformed in your person, transformed in your nature, because God is working in you, and I don't simply mean that you profess to be a Christian because you were born in South Carolina. Or maybe even mom and dad go to church. But no, this transformation that God works in his people, well, the consequence of that is unmistakably life. And part of what makes Proverbs so wonderful is that life doesn't only mean after death. It means now, too. The fear of the Lord leads to life, life eternal. After you perish, you will never perish. But it leads to life now as we live within God's law and we live within God's sovereign design and we live within God's perfect plan. It is a life of life. And the next clause actually goes further in explaining what that life is like. How, how can it be life? How can it feel like life? These people, these saints, 
Whoever has it rests satisfied. They rest contented. Now, I want you to just momentarily just think about it. I mean, this is the perfect illustration. I mean, mean, obviously God wrote it. But the last time that you had serious difficulty in your life or serious physical pain in your life or serious financial difficulty in your life and think about the process of laying your head on the pillow and trying to close your eyes. I mean, that's the hardest time, isn't it? I mean, if we keep ourselves busy, it's like we can make the chaos inside our skull go away. But when we try to sleep, oh, you can't shut the voice up then. That's when the numbers run in your head. The bills count up. That's when... The fears creep in. That's when the judgments of past sins echo in your ears. Those are the things that you did in third grade that you're embarrassed about. Somehow manage to come back in those moments. God promises contentment to his saints. And then the last one, which is just staggering. That these people, these ones who are God's people, these saints who fear the Lord, they have life eternal, they have life now. It's a life that is to be marked by contentment and satisfaction, and it is a life that is marked by protection. It's been an interesting one, try to figure out how to preach that one this week. Ask Chad Kirtan about this one next week when he's back from drill. But I think the rest of the proverb actually frames out what this protection looks like. It frames out what this contentment looks like. It frames out what this life now looks like. It it puts color and flavor and shape to these nebulous ideas. It provides the consequences. One commentator has phrased the the paraphrase of this verse to be, Fear him, ye saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Other refers to 1 John 4 where it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We fear the Lord and he transforms our relationship with the world around us and with ourselves. And Proverbs 19 shows a number of various ways in which this transformation takes place. First, if we are these people, those that fear the Lord, that have life and satisfaction and protection in him, It will, by definition, reshape our relationship with money. By definition, you you, kind of can't get around that one. In fact, this is the primary illustration that comes out in Proverbs 19. It reshapes our interaction with money. Look at verse 1. 
I mean, the opening salvo. Woo, this one stings. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. You know, it's better not even to have money, but to be filled with the life of God than to have all of the riches of the lands that you could imagine and dishonor the Lord. It's intriguingly captured and and slightly altered in the way that it's presented before Jesus is a very temptation. Do you want the easy way to gain all of the riches of the land? Do you want to reduce it to tangible affluence, influence, and power? Or do you pursue it in holiness and righteousness and love? The trajectory is it's better to not even have money but to be holy than to have tons of it and be unrighteous. This has actually been one of the great gifts that the Me Too movement has given us over the last nine months to a year where we're watching so many of our our cultural elite millionaires upon millionaire time after time who are confirming this with their very actions. Oh man, they've got the money. But the sin has crept up and oh no, here their lives, their families, their relationships are ruined because evil does not pay. Verse 4 kind of builds off of this. Not so much an intensification, but an illustration of it. I thought so so was correct. It is right. Verse 4, wealth brings many friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. There's a temptation for all of us to trust in the money and to think, you know what, money will solve all of our problems. If we just had a little bit more, if we, well, maybe a lot bit more, all of our problems would just go away. It's the money that's the issue. The problem is money isn't the solution. Wealth brings many new friends. That's actually not positive in the way this is verbalized. But a poor man is deserted by his friend. Oh, no, look, money doesn't solve it if you have it, and money doesn't solve it if you don't. Because money's not the issue. A trust in the Lord is. We've been talking about this at the session levels. We've uh, applied to the Cannon Foundation again to try to gain money to help build our building. We've applied to them once to move the berm. We're applying again to help money you know, to get the building. And there is such an easy temptation to say, we will trust in the Cannon Foundation to provide. Because money is the thing that will solve our problem. And not to say, we will devote ourselves to the Lord because He is the one who will solve our problems. Verse 6 turns to the challenge of money. Again, this is the friends are not always positive, depending on how it's verbalized here. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. I, I cannot imagine how difficult it would be to have tons and tons of money. You know, they have a class for NFL players when they first get drafted to teach them how to be a millionaire and not wreck themselves because most NFL players are bankrupt within something like three years after they get out of the league. And part of the thing they have to teach them is tell everyone no, they're not your friend. 
And it's awful because the guys are like, look, they've been my friend since middle school. They're not your friend. Tell them no. Because the second they get a million-dollar paycheck, suddenly they have friends come out of the woodwork. They have everybody's their buddy because they want to mooch off of their money. And there's all kinds of challenges there. Seven, uh, recognizing there's some folks that just have a lack of opportunity. This is perhaps maybe the saddest verse in the entire book of Proverbs. <laughs> a poor man's brothers hate him. They run from him. They don't listen to him when he needs help. They ask, he, the poor man asks for his brothers to help him. They won't help him. How much more do his friends go from, from him? The friends are leaving him. He even goes after them, pursues them with words, but they're not listening. These fair-weather friends have fled because they were there for the money, but when the money's all gone, so are the friends. 17 presents a different relationship with money where true generosity is shown to be more important than money. I mean, I, I love the verbiage of this one. Whoever's generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Wow. I want to know what kind of interest rate he pays. I guarantee it's much better than what your bank's paying. 22 presents loyalty as being more important. What is desired in a man is steadfast love. It, it, loyalty is probably a better term there. Uh, and a poor man is better than a liar. It, what a guy wants is good help, good friends that will actually be reliable and not just be there for his money. So that when his money's all gone, they all leave as well. It reshapes our relationship with money. You look at this chapter and money's just a tool. It's a challenge. It's a difficulty to not have. And it's a difficulty to have. I mean, there's a joke that's saying uh, money is really hard to have. The only thing more difficult than having money is not. Or maybe having lots of it. I'm not sure which. But this is going to reshape how Christians interact with their money because it's not the driving goal. It's not the end goal in accomplishing things. It's not, man, if I can just get this amount of dollars, get this kind of retirement, if I can just get this, I'm good to go. No, money is an opportunity to be employed in life, to be employed in contentment, and to be employed in protection as God changes our lives now. God reshapes our understanding of money. It's interesting how, not, man, historian from my studies in college and such, I, I don't agree with Marxist interpretation in there about any time ever. But one thing they do really well is they understand how much money and greed have played in the history of this country and how much it's kind of in the DNA of Americans and how much it's in the DNA of the American church. And I would suggest maybe this is one of those things that we tend to not think of money as a tool, but we think of money as a goal. It's the end as opposed to the means. And I would suggest that's probably something that we all need to contemplate. It doesn't just stop with money. It goes to that which is also equally important, family. Reshape our relationships with family. These are the ones that always get chuckles when you read them, and it lets me know you're paying attention when we read the scriptures, because some of these are hilarious. Verse 13. 
A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. That is absolutely hysterical. A foolish son, boy, you want to talk about bringing a ruin to his father. Think about in small town, if you have family business and you have a son that's just a complete and total disaster, what does that do to the family business? Ooh, man, that's a problem. And wife's quarreling, I'm comfortable saying husbands as well here, but it's like that constant dripping that just drives you absolutely crazy. Just stop. Oh, just make it go away for a little bit. In fact, actually, that's one of those things we talk about when we do marriage counseling. When we talk with folks is if you want to start marriage counseling, first thing first, just stop the arguing for just a little bit so the friction can die down so you can actually start making progress because all it ends up doing is just driving each other crazy. 14, the counterpoint to that is opposed to the quarreling, the continual dripping of torture. Uh, a prudent wife is from the Lord um, and is greater than the inheritance, the wealth gained from fathers. I love the contrast there. Which does God value more highly for young men? The wealth gained from a father's inheritance or a prudent wife? The wife is infinitely more valuable reshapes how we think about our relationships. Money's not the end goal. Holiness is. And I like here how it's not a beautiful wife. It's not a gorgeous wife. It's not even a smart wife. It's a prudent wife. It's a holy wife. A wise wife is a gift from the Lord. 18. Parents, particularly of young children, please heed this. Discipline your children, for there is hope. But recognizing if you do that, things are going to get tough and they're going to make you a little bit crazy. Don't set your heart on putting them to death. But it's intriguing, interesting how, again, it reshapes the family relationship to say the dynamic of parent and child is the dynamic, particularly when they're young, it is the dynamic of discipline. It's shaping. It's formative. It's not the dynamic of friendship. That is incredibly important to get as the gospel kind of reshapes how we have our friendships, how we have our relationships. The dynamic between parent and child is the dynamic of discipline and love. It's intriguing how actually that's one of the most common ways that God speaks about his relationship with us. It's a dynamic of discipline and love, obviously coupled with patience in the text. 26, he who does violence to his father and mother chases, uh, his father chases away his mother and his son who brings shame and reproach. I, children, I'm just going to give to the kiddos in the room one little note. It's interesting how when Proverbs talks about the ultimate fool, the biggest idiot, moron, evil thing a child can be, it is a child that hates their parents. Please never say that. 
please never think that. Do your best to learn to love them and respect them with all of your heart. Because there will be a day where you go to college and you will think you have it all figured out. And about five years later, as your taxes start increasing, you'll realize mom and dad knew way more than you thought. It's interesting how that's presented as the consummate illustration of the fool. The highest perfect example of the evil person is a person who hates their parents. Does violence and shame to them. Reshapes our relationship with money. Reshapes our relationship with our family. It reshapes our relationship with ourselves. Verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. The fool is the one who is so lacking in sense that their anger gets the better of them. They're not able to stay within their own mind. It's like the fire ignites. It just explodes and then they can't get it back under control. It's a cartoon of my childhood, Animaniacs, one of the greatest cartoons of all time. Um, Not written for children in any way, but hysterical. But it had one of the great characters in uh, cartoon history, a a young lady named Katie Kaboom. Katie Kaboom is my favorite character. She was a young lady who uh, was stereotyping, I think, all kind of preteen, teenager types. Uh, And she had, I would not say she had a short fuse. She had no fuse. (laughs) And it was this caricature of a home of two parents tiptoeing around their preteen teenage daughter, just trying not to make her mad because she would explode. But the trick with Katie Kaboom is she actually did explode. She would blow the house up, and so every little bit with her would end where something mom and dad would do would transgress her will, and she would explode, and the house would go up in flames. It's a great caricature of the American home. How much we tiptoe around folks because they can't control themselves. Or, going back to the parenting one, because we haven't disciplined as we think through it all. Slow to anger, forgiving one another, glory to overlook an offense. This is an intriguing one. Again, not about winning. I mean, I think most of us, or many of us in the room, are competitive enough that we find glory in winning. I mean, I love to win. I don't, get you, don't get me wrong on that one. I love to win. If we play a game, whoo, buckle up. I will do my best to torch you. <laughs> but it's interesting how when it comes time to deal with a relationship and to deal with self, the glory is in overlooking offenses. There's a glory in forgiveness. Instead of being trapped in anger. Verse 19, again, the the contrast between being a slave to the self, a slave to anger. Oh, what a a heartbreaking portrait. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty. And what's the idea? Don't help him. Don't deliver him. Because if you bail him out, you're just going to have to do it again and again and again and again because their wrath has the best of them. Lastly, and very quickly... Very quickly. It reshapes our relationship with the truth. Verses 5, 9, uh, 5, 9, and 28 all deal with this concept of the false witness. Rather than being out for what we can get the most of, how we can get the most money, or how we can get the most pleasure, or how we can win the best, or how we can reshape our world in order to get the greatest sort of victory, 
No, instead, God's people, these ones who fear the Lord, who are life, who have life, who are satisfied, who are protected by God, they will instead value truth, even when it's inconvenient. They won't lie to smooth things over. They won't lie to increase their help. They won't lie to increase their insurance payout, though they may be tempted. Not that I know anything about that. Now, if you're paying attention to the sermon, I started out with the the opening verse. And it's interesting, the way that it's presented is these things will happen. They will have life in, in this life. They will have an abundant life. They will have contentment. And they will have protection. And it's interesting because I think most of us would in some sense say there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance here. There's a little bit of a a gap between the two. Because maybe I'm in the situation where I know I fear the Lord and I know I love Him, but either my, we'll just use the illustrations from the passage, my money, my family, myself, my temper, my truth, any of those things, I'm not feeling contentment. Or maybe I'm, I'm not feeling the protection of God. Maybe I'm not feeling the victory that God has designed. Maybe All I feel is the pain and the trial and the difficulty. Maybe when I look at this, I I, I don't feel the transformation that God has promised. And I give you an answer. In fact, actually, if you have kids, they've already figured out the answer by the time they're five. They already know exactly the solution. Give a five-year-old that doesn't like broccoli... Give them a plate full of broccoli. Tell them they have to eat eat it. And then mistakenly, instead of giving them cheese to put on the broccoli, give them the bag of cheese. How much cheese is going to end up on the broccoli? (laughs) The correct answer is all of it, so they can't taste the broccoli. Me growing up, it was how I used to make tuna fish. When I was single, I would take tuna. I hate tuna. I hate fish. I don't know why I ate it. I would take it and add tons of mayonnaise. I would add an entire jar of relish and as much pepper as I could possibly stand so that it didn't taste like tuna fish. We have some sort of kind of intrinsic understanding that when we have to deal with things that we don't like, we drown them out with good things. And yet, weirdly enough, as adults, we forget that lesson we learned when we were five. And when it comes time for us to wrestle with contentment or wrestle with money or wrestle with how to deal with that really difficult family member or coworker or whatever else, we somehow think it's more noble or more productive to just try to eat the broccoli straight as opposed to drowning it in Christ. You see, the five-year-old's already figured it out. If you have to eat the broccoli that you hate, cover it up. 
If you have to wrestle with the money things that you don't like or the family things that you don't like or even your own temper or your own internal disposition or your own doubts or having to wrestle with the truth, the answer is not to focus entirely on the problems. It's to focus on Christ through the problems. Drown it out. It's to be so filled with a mind for God that all of the rest of the stuff, it may not become simple to understand the solution, but it puts it in the right perspective. It's just money. You can have it all taken away. It's just family. You can have it all taken away. And I mean that. It's just you. And you can be taken away. But Christ can't be. He can't leave you. He can't forsake you. He can't be taken from you. That's why you all know Romans 8, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Nothing inside creation, if you are God's child, can separate you from God's love. So go think about that. I know I'm not the only one who's had a really insane week. I have been able to do enough of my job to have those conversations somewhat. I know that we have been in a season of great tranquility in this church. And for God's purposes, whatever they are, he seems to have ended that season at least for a time. May it be that we as a body commit ourselves not to sorting through the money or the family or ourselves or the truth or any of those things secondarily. Try to make them first. May we commit ourselves to drowning it all out with Christ. And if we do that, all of the other stuff, I'm firmly convinced, will sort itself out along the way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, O Lord God, what a sweet promise we have that those that fear you will have life will be satisfied and rest, will be protected from harm. We ask that you would keep your promise to your people. And Lord, we also recognize in great weakness, we too often, I don't know if it's out of nobility, foolishness, or pride, but we so often focus on only the negative. And somehow forget to meditate on you. May our hearts be filled with you, triune God. That our minds would be occupied with you and your perfect plan. That we may rest peacefully, contentedly, and safely. Even in the fiercest of storms. For Christ's sake. Amen.